1: Hello, aviators, and welcome to the Flight Time series by Hangar Talk and Flight Training Magazine, where we bring you the exciting world of aviation. Each show, we will revisit a popular Hangar Talk interview for the flight training audience. I'm Jennifer Non, Senior Manager of Media Relations and Public Affairs at AOPA. This week, we're talking careers. Who hasn't dreamed of being a professional pilot? Let's face it, sitting in a chair traveling 500 miles per hour, six miles above the earth, is a pretty great way to make a living. But with the high cost of training, challenging lifestyle, and sometimes volatile job market, it can be tough to figure out if flying is the right career for you. Today, AOPA associate editor and co-host of AOPA's Hangar Talk podcast, David Toulis, caught up with his old friend Jeremy King. King is a pilot at a major airline, but his path there was a winding one. He talks about how his family didn't have the money to help him launch an aviation career, but how he used sweat equity to get there. King became an aviation mechanic first and later used his degree to help promote an air show routine. He's a great example that everyone's path is unique, and there is no right way to do it. If you want to learn more about flying for a living, check out AOPA's resources at AOPA.org. Click on Training and Safety and Learn to Fly. And if you're not an AOPA member, make sure to push that Join button while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All right, David, take it away.
0: Welcome, Jeremy King, a first officer for a major airline flying out of New York City. Jeremy, a longtime general aviation pilot. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in aviation.
2: Well, Dave, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, sit down and talk airplanes with you a little bit. Basically, I started a long time before the Department of Labor would have appreciated me hanging around the airport. I apprenticed with a little one-man repair shop when I was about 13 years old and started off sweeping floors and holding flashlights. And as my boss was able to see that I had some mechanical skills, he would start up in the ante. He'd say, well, you see how this brake caliper goes together? You think you can change the one on the other side? Yeah. It would just escalate over the years and uh, ended up with me getting my A&P mechanic Certificate Toured with a little air show team for a couple of years and uh, bounced back and forth different mechanic jobs until I could get into the flying side of things.
0: Well, I should actually let our podcast listeners know here on Hangar Top. By the way, uh, we got Jeremy via Skype. I'm supposed to let folks know right off the bat. But, yeah, we didn't talk too much about this during the intro, but you did start out as an aviation mechanic. And now you've got multiple skills. I know you're a mechanic, you're a pilot. You are also a a communications major because my wife helped teach a course that you attended at West Georgia, over in Georgia. But now, um, how did you get started with the maintenance side of things?
2: Well, basically uh, my grandfather was a mechanic for Delta Airlines here in Atlanta. He was a sheet metal uh, mechanic and inspector. And he took me into their hangar one Sunday morning when things were kind of slow, right as he was nearing retirement. And he saw me walking around just like eyes as big as saucers as we were going through these shops. My father was a heavy equipment mechanic for a logging outfit, and mom's idea of daycare was sending me to work with him during the summer. So I was pretty good with my hands, but getting to see a clean shop in the, in the aviation world was an eye-opening experience to say the least. And then he put me in the pilot seat of a 727 and he pointed to the airspeed indicator and he knew that I wanted to be a railroad engineer more than anything at that point. And he said, "Uh, well, Jeremy, how many trains do you know of that can go 330 knots? And it was just kind of like uh, the light bulb came on over my head. All these ideas started percolating and he he set reasonable expectations from the early, uh, from the early stage. He said, you know, we've got no money for you to go straight into the flying side, but maybe we could find a mechanic that would let you apprentice and you just never know where it'll go from there.
0: Well, that's kind of cool. So you started out more or less as, like you said, as an apprentice, you know, taking off, uh, brake shoes and pads and things like that, and figured it out kind of from the ground up. And how old were you about at that time, Jeremy?
2: I think I was just shy of 14 years old when I showed up at the airport and and started sweeping floors. So, like I said, the Department of Labor wouldn't be too proud to hear that, but I've been doing this since I was a kid.
0: That's right. And now, um, as folks could, could listen to us on Skype and on Hangar Talk, they could probably tell a little bit that you and I have the same, more or less the same accent. I'm from Atlanta, and you grew up in uh, West Georgia, near Carrollton, Georgia, which is a great place for aviators, right?
2: Oh, man, it was, it was a haven. Um, the West Georgia EAA Chapter 976 used to host a yearly fly-in. And just uh, a few days ahead of the fly-in, some of the performers started trickling into town, and there was this beat up GMC pickup truck that came around the corner towing a glider trailer. And I had no idea what was going on. All I knew is this high ball of energy climbed out of the driver's seat, and everybody on the airport just was drawn to him. Um, Pure magnetism, it seemed. And so I had to go see what the fuss was about. And uh, this guy was Chris Smith, and this was my introduction to who would become one of my biggest uh, mentors and friends. And I ended up washing his plane in exchange for a ride in his, um, his Linn 526F, and, uh, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I started touring with him on the air show circuit as his mechanic and, uh, and publicist.
0: Gotcha. Now, I met Chris Smith, and actually Dave Hirschman wrote a little story about him back in Atlanta when we were both at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: Yeah, we we all met the uh, a week or two after 9/11, I believe it was that you were out there doing the story about all the general aviation flights that were grounded in the week in the uh, wake of the 9/11 attacks.
0: You have a good memory, sir. Very good. Now at that time, you were a young whippersnapper, you know, going to college, and you had that aviation bug. And you really, you fueled that bug, Jeremy. And, and tell me how you got your private pilot's certificate and, and sort of how you earned that, how you got the money to do that and the time and that kind of thing.
2: Well, I never got the money to do it. That was the trick is if you can do it exchanging sweat equity and elbow grease in exchange for the flying time, it's a lot cheaper. Okay. There were CFIs on my home field that I would wash, wax their airplanes and help at maintenance time in exchange for a few hours of their time. There were flight clubs and uh, flying schools that I helped with their maintenance in exchange for some block time. And I ended up working for a flight school at Peace Treaty Cab Airport, and that's where I ended up finishing using an employee discount in the last couple hours to uh, get my private ticket. And from then, once people figured out I was a pilot and a mechanic, people just started giving me keys to their airplanes. And in fact, I've still got a key ring floating over here with probably two dozen airplane keys on it from uh, people who would just be like, well, here, here's the key. Fly it when you want. Just help me to uh, keep the thing running. And uh, I built my time flying on all the airplanes that I was working on.
0: That is cool. And that's a great way to get going. Love, people could still do that today, really, Jeremy. You could find an airport, find a mentor, hang around, do a little sweat equity, as you said. And that's a good way to keep the expenses down for sure.
2: Absolutely. In fact, there's a fantastic program down south of Atlanta in uh, Williamson. that The Youth Aviation Program at the Kendler Field Museum is pioneering. And I, I really encourage people to look into it. And they're happy to open their books and give you copies of everything they're doing so you can copy and paste and repeat this uh, process at your home field. But they're, uh, they're having high school kids come in two days a week and work on airplane restoration projects. And they're building their, um, building their time towards an A&P certificate. And for every maybe, I think, 10 hours of work, they get an hour of flight time, something like that. That's great. So there's a lot of kids that are, um, that are being exposed to both sides, maintenance and flying and uh, getting great experience and certainly getting to bypass the big cost of getting into aviation.
0: Absolutely. And that's a, a little shout out. That was uh, Ron Alexander's field down there and Kayla McLeod, one of the young aviators that was, um, I guess, a protege of his has gone on to help out at Triple Tree Aerodrome and also to help coordinate the young aviators flying. So that's a little tie in down there south of atlanta in williamson field that's peach state aerodrome or it used to be called that
2: kayla is certainly a force to be reckoned with and i I would urge people to keep their eyes on her because she's going great places and I'm, i'm glad to see her doing what she's doing and i look forward to seeing some other names and faces come out of that same program
0: absolutely and with folks um mentored you jeremy and now you can give back and mentor other people now i'm going to put you on the spot have you mentored anybody yet
2: Kind of, sort of, yes. One of my mentors that I finished up with, that that helped me to get to the airline experience level that I needed, the the last couple hours and ratings that I needed, he actually had an airport kid hanging around his hangar, and I've kind of co-opted mentoring this guy as he's finished his private certificate and is now trying to decide where to go from here. When I got into the regional airlines, they only required about 210 to 250 hours of experience to get in. And under the new rules that swept in behind me, the bar is up to, I think, 1,200 hours for the, to get into the same job. And so sitting down and brainstorming with him to figure out a path to that level of experience to get him into a full-time flying job has been interesting. It's been a lot like getting sit across the table from me when I was that age. He's in a very similar situation. Not a lot of money, but a lot of gumption and uh, a lot of motivation. And I- I'm glad to see that we've still got airport kids coming into the system. But at the same time, it's also a little bit frustrating and that they've got to pay dues a lot longer yeah. to uh, get the same break that I had.
0: Well, and it's expensive. I mean, there's no way around it. It is kind of it is costly. Now, there are scholarships available to folks, especially AOPA scholarships. So there are other options out there, but you have to, again, it's who you know and it's uh, maybe talk a little bit about your network. How do you network with people and how, you know, what recommendations do you have for the next generation of doing that?
2: Well, you know, go find your local airport. You know, your local airport may not be the one that you think of when you think of your your city and aviation. You know, people think Atlanta and they're like, oh, Hartsville Jackson International Airport or Peach Peachtree. Uh, when, in fact, there could be a, a much smaller field nearby, go find an EAA chapter, go to a fly-in, and just start start meeting people and hanging out. And things have changed. There's big fences around most airports, but that's due to um, federal security requirements. And you'll find that a lot of times those fences are not nearly as um, as much of a blocking force as they seem at first. I think there's still a lot of couches at FBOs that you could anchor down and make some lifelong friends. And I mean, I'm not really stretching the truth when I tell you that my private pilot ground school was on the couch at the Carrollton FBO reading grungy old back issues of AOPA pilot, a flying magazine. When I tell people that Len Morgan was my ground school instructor, I'm really not stretching the truth at all.
0: There are plenty of good aviation writers out there, and there's a lot of good information that folks can get from magazines, such as our own AOPA Flight Training Magazine, AOPA Pilot, and many, many others, as you said. And, you know, flipping through weathered copies of Trade a Plane is always kind of cool to set the sights pretty high for a young aviator, you know, that kind of thing. And I always did that myself. I really enjoyed that. And, in fact... Meeting people, just like in any business, it's the key to the game. I would I would agree with you on that. So now I know that you your life has taken some twists and turns a little bit in the aviation world. And, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but you've climbed out on top. You are a first officer with a, a major uh, airline. And now you live in Atlanta and then you fly out of New York. Now, how do you get from Atlanta to New York? Like, what's your typical day like? And can you kind of walk us through that?
2: Sure, sure. I usually bid my trips to start late in the evening on the first day. And so what I'll do is I'll get Amy to drop me at the MARTA station on her way to work at 8 in the morning. And I'll uh, ride down to Hartsfield. Um, My airline has a a late morning flight up to New York, and I usually catch it. And I keep a crash pad in uh, Howard Beach, just right outside of JFK Airport. And I'll go there for a few hours. I'll catch a nap and eat lunch and kind of put the game face on before I start my trip, usually with a red-eye, either um, late night down to the Caribbean or over to the West Coast. And um, the, the commute is long, but it's it's just kind of part of the job at this point. And every airline pilot goes through a phase, at least, if not an entire career of having having to catch a ride to work every week. You know, the, uh, the reward is certainly worth it getting to live just about anywhere in the country that you want to be as long as you can make the commute work.
0: So now that's interesting. Like my commute over here to AOPA is about, uh, you know, it's like 15 minutes or so, which is pretty good. I live in Urbana, Maryland, and our headquarters are in Frederick, about 30 miles north of D.C. Now your commute's a little bit longer. you got like about a 700-mile commute, but you're telling me that's just part of the job. It's something to get used to
2: yeah my my first uh, the regional airline I worked for was here in Atlanta, and I could drive to the airport and I had a thirty minute commute just like most anybody with uh, with a normal job. but i was I was one of the lucky ones to to live where I was working, and you'll find that a large percentage of of air crews end up commuting to someplace other than where they work for their uh, for much of their career.
0: So if someone was based out of New York City, they might live in Philadelphia and they commute that way, or out of Washington D.C., or you know, somewhere in the suburbs of uh, of, of outside of Denver, and then commute to Denver and start from that.
2: Yes, yep. Um, I've heard of several guys commuting from the West Coast to the East Coast. The record that I've heard of so far, there was one guy who lived in Vietnam and was commuting. To um, I think Chicago. Oh my! Um, that may be the record for the longest commute that I've heard of. That's a big one. There's probably some outlier that puts that to shame, but yeah, realistically, you know, if you're within a three to five hour flight of uh, of the airports, domicile, that's kind of a, a typical commute in this business.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And then speaking of commuting and and places to go and places to see and be seen. You recently had a pretty darn cool landing at a place that a lot of people have seen uh, via YouTube videos, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but is it Maho Beach in Phillipsburg, St. Martin?
2: That's correct. Um, St. Martin has long been a, a haven for AF geeks and photographers. There's a bar there at Maho Beach that caters to the airplane crowd because the beach is about, I don't know, 50 feet wide, and then there's a road, and then there's the runway. And so basically you can cling onto the fence as these heavy airliners are throttling up to take off and, uh, and you can feel the weight turbulence as, uh, as they come in on approach, it is probably the closest you will get to transport category airplane operations in this world. And the fact that it's next to beautiful blue water and salt air in the, uh, down the Caribbean is, uh, just, just an added bonus on top of that.
0: Now, how how high are you guys above the beach when you're coming in on that landing?
2: Probably fifty to seventy-five feet over the beach. Usually, we're, we're shooting, I think, for about thirty-five feet over the uh, end of the runway. So I would say fifty to seventy-five feet as we're crossing the beach is probably about right.
0: So does that does that provide a little extra hot air for some of the people that are down there underneath those jet engines? <laughs> I mean, they'd get blown away down there, uh, although you are on lower power when you're trying to land, but, I mean, if you needed a squirt of power or something, I mean, I would think that that might be a little tricky.
2: I haven't heard of anybody being burned there, Um, but I have personally been on the beach when a KLM 747 took off about 10 years ago, and I thought I was well off to the side enough to be outside the blast zone, but I got sandblasted pretty good, and... I had a I had a little uh, camera I, w- I was videoing it, and I ended up just kind of hunkering behind the camera, using that as a cover for my eyes, trying to keep from getting sand in my eyes. So yeah, I don't remember the heat, but I certainly remember being sandblasted.
0: Absolutely. man now that's got to be a beautiful place to land. It's um, I'm guessing it's one of your top ten so far. Am I wrong on that?
2: You're not wrong. Um, Taking off out of there is just as fun because there's a giant mountain right off the end of the runway. And so basically as soon as you're airborne, you're making a hard right turn and flying visually between two mountain peaks and out over the water. So the departure, I think, is just as much uh, of a challenge as the arrival.
0: Challenging uh, operations there in uh, the Caribbean. That's something a lot of people have faced. In fact, you coincidentally, you were down there just a couple of days After, uh, there was a Cirrus Parachute uh, uh, pool event down there that some folks were rescued by the Regal Princess, basically a cruise ship down there. And you were were not far from there during that whole episode.
2: Yeah, and it was funny. I was sitting there on the ground in St. Martin. We had 90 minutes on the ground between uh, arrival and departure, and I was sitting there scrolling through when I first saw the news of that. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was another great save for Sirius. What an innovation that they've brought into the industry, and you know what a story that all the uh, all the cruise passengers will have to share about the time they were part of a uh, of a rescue.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick sidestep. I want to I want to pursue this parachute safety scenario real quick with you. Okay. Now, I'm throwing this out of left field at you, but I know you're an experienced GA pilot, and I know you you know you even though you started in the ranks sort of in a mentorship process with uh, the with, you know, maintenance side of things, but what do you think that says to, to parents? I mean, if someone is interested in getting into flight training, certainly there are other barriers, financial barriers, uh, access barriers, things like that, but I always, you know, revert back to the family. Now, will the family be – will they be comfortable with their child learning about aviation and taking flight lessons? And I want to think that this serious idea of that whole airplane parachute really – has helped a lot of people get started in aviation?
2: Well, maybe it has. The flight school that I finished with had had a few cirruses on the line, although, to be honest, I couldn't afford to rent them at the time. But, you know, if, if you've got the money and they've got the plane, yes, it would be a great combination for a little bit of extra peace of mind from the family back home. But then again, like I said, most of my flight school experiences are at places that a Cirrus is, um, is a mighty expensive acquisition. It, it's a great safety device, and it's done wonders for the industry. But I've just not seen a whole lot of training airplanes that, that had the, the parachute built in like that.
0: Yeah, it's, exp- it's expensive. I'll, I'll give you that. And also, I, I learned on a Cessna 172, it did not have one. But again, you know, you're learning more about safety aspects and what to do if you have an engine out over the, you know, just shortly after takeoff. But beyond that, during flight training, you know, once you get to altitude near the airport, you kind of can glide back to the airport. And then we're always trained to look for an emergency airfield just down the road. So there's two sides of that for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I want to take it back into the financials for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about this and talk about, you know, airline work and, and, you know, compare that to, to say, pursuing medicine or law or, or something like that. Are you noticing an uptick at all of fellow pilots coming into the realm of career aviation?
2: It used to be that a lot of people were leaving aviation and going to, to other careers. I, when I first got into the regionals, my first year was about $19,000 pay and at that point, it kind of stagnated. The retirement age changed from 60 to 65. And so for five years, there was no movement. And a lot of people were getting stuck at the bottom of the list and, and not making much money. And I know several people who took that opportunity to exit aviation altogether. Now, things have turned. The regionals are paying a lot more. I'm seeing a lot of 50 dollars to $70,000 first year pay scales in in the regional world which is unheard of. I did 10 years in the business and I never made that much money. And so yeah, it's drawn a lot of people who have been on the sidelines, you know, they may not be as established as say, you know, a doctor or a dentist, but certainly with with what we would consider a professional career who are taking a look at the dollars and cents of it, and it is starting to look more and more attractive. So we are starting to draw more people in, but at the same time, we've um, we've solved the bottom rungs off of the ladder of entry, and so by raising the the total time required to get into an airline job, I, a lot of my a lot of my peers are are happy to to see this. They're seeing you know more experienced pilots entering the uh, the career. But the flip side of that coin is that it keeps a lot of people who have great skills and great attitudes from entering. So it's kind of a double edged
0: sword, really. I'm glad you explained it that way, Jeremy. I was thinking about that as you were talking about that. And yeah, the, the, the entry, a high number of hours that one needs to you know, basically enter the business will keep a lot of people out. But on the other hand, you mentioned something that I really didn't think too much about, but that was the whole reason to change the number of hours, which is a lot more experience, a lot more under your belt, a lot more of real life experiences that uh, the folks coming to industry would already have. Yeah. All right. So, um, are there are there any um, tips that you would like to throw out at our younger listening audience members or folks who want to make a career change, Jeremy? to pursue aviation as a career pilot?
2: Well, yeah, I would say that keep in mind there's not a one-size-fits-all career solution in this business. I love the airline stuff. It affords me you know, free and reduced-cost travel all around the world. It gives me a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I mean, here we are on a Tuesday late morning. And, uh, and I'm just getting moving for the day. You know, most people with a nine-to-five job would already be halfway through their work day. So I've got nothing but a honeydew list to deal with this afternoon as I'm working in the yard. But, you know, the airline thing is not for everybody. There's great corporate and charter jobs out there. There's, uh, you know, if your, your tastes run more towards smaller airplanes. There's a lot of people who have made great careers doing uh, like bush flying up in Alaska. There's pipeline uh, monitors that have racked up, you know, 20,000 hours and super cubs and 172s. And you talk to any of these guys and they're still just absolutely passionate about what they're doing. And so I just I encourage people looking at getting into the into the career to make sure they get the right job, that they wind up at the right employer. And even within the airline business, the different airlines have different attitudes and different kinds of flying that they're doing. And I just, I, do your homework, decide what it is you want to do. You don't have to make that decision from day one. I mean, honestly, I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to grow up much less what I'm going to be when I grow up.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly.
2: So, but, but just keep in mind what you want to be doing and work towards that goal nonstop.
0: So you brought up a couple of good options, Jeremy. Um, Alaska, bush flying, that kind of thing. We touched a little bit about corporate flying. I mean, do you have any of your buddies that are corporate pilots? That seems like a great way to go, too.
2: I do. In fact, uh, one of my big brothers from the Carrollton Airport, he took me up for my first ride in a J3 Cub about 45 minutes after my first flying lesson. And we spent the afternoon turning toilet paper into a confetti. Oh, nice. And I squarely blame him on the reason why I ended up buying a, a J3 Cub project, just because I, I want to keep that level of fun in my flying all the way to the end but he and his father run a corporate flight department at my home airport at Carrollton. I know several people that are doing air ambulance stuff with Learjets and it's kind of all over the place. You know, there's, you can find a job to fit what you want to be doing and, and to fill the the economic need in your life as well and, and find the right balance. And it doesn't always have to be a big hulking airliner.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So there are many options for folks and actually uh, people could take up, flight instructing, but people who are very passionate about aviation. They might be good teachers, and that's a, another career pilot path as someone who wants to teach others about aviation, and they don't really have aspirations to become an airline pilot or a private commercial pilot for a business, but they could still teach people, and that's a great way to go, too.
2: Absolutely, and, you know, that was the traditional route of, paying dues for generations in this business is you would get your ratings and then you would instruct for a year or two before you got your first uh, first big flying job. And kind of an interesting twist, I fly with a lot of airline pilots who are nearing the re- their mandatory retirement age. They're coming up on 65 and a lot of them start bouncing off of me. You know, hey, Jeremy, you're, you're knee deep in general aviation. You do some magazine writing. You're, you're exposed to everything What should I be looking at doing for a retirement job? And I try to tell these older guys that flight instruction is a viable route for them as well because they can take their years of experience and and reasonable expectations of, of what to see out in the real world and take that into the classroom and into the cockpits of these trainers and be able to bring a level of instruction to the, the young students that they're just not getting from these uh, newer flight instructors.
0: That's right. To bring a level of instruction, experience, and, and basically excitement. You know, you know folks who, who have been in the regional or major air carrier world can bring a lot to the table. And, and you mentioned something that I wanted to also mention in that folks can find you, Jeremy, via your articles at Plane and Pilot Magazine, planeandpilotmag.com, right? That's
2: correct. I've been with plane and pilot for, I think, three years now. I'm a senior editor. I share a column with a couple other uh, professional
0: pilots, and uh, I sneak in an occasional feature as well. All right. Well, any, any final thoughts, Jeremy? We sure appreciate you being a guest via Skype today. Any final thoughts to the other folks who are listening or they might have an interest in aviation and they just don't know how to get started?
2: Well, you know, it's easy enough to find me, and I'm always happy to, to offer, you know, advice. You know, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram or wherever. It's a pretty easy search. But, you know, in the words of, uh, of Christmas and one of my great mentors, dream loudly. And because if you keep it to yourself, other people might be able to help you but might not know where you're wanting to go. So dream loudly, stick with it, and these things pay off
0: dream loudly and stick with it i love that jeremy i sure appreciate it thank you very much for joining us we're glad you had time to uh spend with us this morning and i'm sorry that you had a couple of days with nothing much to do but maybe you can go out there and do some ga flying or work on that that cub you got there
2: oh, i'll have grease under my fingernails before the sun goes down today dave thanks for having me i really appreciate it all
0: right hope to talk to you soon thanks jeremy